0: Hey, everybody, this is Phil Town.
1: And this is Danielle Town. And
0: welcome to Invested, the podcast about rule one, Warren Buffett-style investing. Rule one being don't lose money. (laughs) That's kind of a key thing. And And what's rule
1: number two, Dad?
0: Oh, rule number two is don't forget rule number one,
1: which is don't
0: lose money, which means we invest when we think that we have a high degree of certainty that we're buying something a lot cheaper than what it's worth, kind of like going to a garage sale and finding things you know are valuable and then buying them really super cheap that you can sell on eBay. That's rule one investing. So don't we have, lose
1: money.
0: Yeah, don't lose money. And Danielle and I have this ongoing discussion about whether there's any other sort of thing you could call investing. And <laughs> <laughs> that, that we take a very hard line here. I don't know that she agrees with it. That that's investing. Everything else, when you just put money into something, uh, you pay what it's worth, then what you're doing is speculating that something good's going to happen in the future. And since the future is highly unpredictable, um, this idea that you're buying things below their value is critical. It's the three most important words of investing, according to Ben Graham, margin of safety. And um, and I just want to say that we've noticed that there's a few people who've commented that we're sort of repetitive here. We're taking forever to get through anything. But just, <laughs> I, I just want to pound in that... This is a very simple investing strategy. It's been working well for over 80 years. It's in, it's very simple, but it's deceptively simple. And, um, you know, the last few weeks we've been listening to our discussion with about investing with Guy Spear uh, out in Zurich. And, um, and Guy has, you know, another view. Um, we're very much in the same camp in terms of what we're looking for out there. But there were some things that Guy talked about that we wanted to go into a little bit more today.
1: Yeah, I think we don't mind being repetitive because we're learning. I'm learning. We're both practicing this investing technique at this point. And repetition is an incredibly important part of learning something. And I think the more we go over, actually, Dad, I've found I learned something in a a different way or I learned something I I I forgot or I learned something I didn't notice the first time every time we talk about uh, one of the main principles of investing, and that's why I'm glad we we've, we've been doing this back to basics series, because I've really been learning a ton. Even though we already talked about all this stuff supposedly, we've been talking about a bunch of stuff we didn't talk about the first time around. So I think it's been great. Well, I for think me there's personally.
0: a there's a real danger in in um, in adding more and more strategies to your investing uh, sort of. Uh, you know your investing concepts because that if you, if you this kind of investing just requires some very very strong basics that you just repeat over and over again and the reason that we we want to focus so much on a very few things and do them well is because we're going to invest when everybody else is running for the hills and that's very scary and if you have lots of different investing techniques. What's gonna happen is you're gonna find yourself completely overwhelmed by different things you could apply at different times in the market and what the market's doing, and uh, that really shows up. I know we haven't talked much about options, but um, one day we will. Warren Buffett's one of the largest options traders in the world, and people don't even know that. But, But in options, you have, oh, so many different strategies you can employ and options. You can be short, you can be long, you can be both at the same time, you can do all kinds of things um, that uh, at any one moment, there's some reason to think that a particular strategy would work in any kind of a market in any kind of a situation. And, you know, honestly, you just have to be a genius to pull that off. You know, <laughs> you, you, you know, you, oh, I know exactly what it, it would be like, suddenly you're running a football team and you're calling all of the plays at the NFL level. You know, I mean, you just are so sophisticated and so complicated and so many things you have to remember. And most of us just can't do that. We're just not at that level, you know?
1: Well, and most of us have day jobs and children and people in our lives and things, errands that have to be run. Like we don't have, this is not our full-time job.
0: Exactly. And, And so, um, guy had some ideas on that that I thought we we should talk about a little bit one one is that <clears throat> his notion that we should be invested pretty much all the time which yeah was I really was interesting
1: really struck by that comment because and I, I even said to you dad what do you think about that because it was the opposite of what you've been saying
0: yeah I I was really sort of taken back by that I, and I and I haven't had a chance to talk to guy much about it more you know but I do know that there's a flavor of that in Warren Buffett's investing advice to other people as well. Um, what,
1: what does he recommend? I haven't heard that one.
0: Well, Buffett was famous for just a few years ago saying that his, when he dies, um, the money that he leaves to his estate should be managed by simply putting it into the market permanently um, through a stock market index and just leave it alone.
1: Like through a broad market index, like right. an S&P kind of index?
0: Yeah, like like SPY or SPX would be two big broad market indexes that are buying the 500 largest stocks. Okay. And and Warren's point is that it's, it's difficult for anyone to invest properly and extremely difficult to manage a lot of money invested properly. Um, when you're talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars, The opportunities to invest a significant portion of that money, you know, like 10% of of $100 billion is $10 billion. You know, that's larger than most of the companies in the stock market, $10 billion. So you've got a real problem at finding something to put the money into um, when you're looking at something that large. And so Buffett's point is that there's not very many people that can do what he and Charlie Munger have been doing successfully for many, many years and um, while he's happy to have Berkshire's money invested by fund managers um, that he's bringing on, he would prefer that his family just rely on the broad market index to do well. <clears throat> now, of course,
1: well, maybe he also <clears throat> knows his family and knows that they don't want to spend their days doing full time investing.
0: Well, I, mean, I think that's true. I mean, none of his kids have really taken up the, you know, the baton. From from Buffett, they've all are doing things that they wanted to do. And the second thing is that when you have a hundred or whatever it is, I don't I think Buffett's personal fortune is thirty billion. So when you have thirty billion dollars, you really don't have to be that concerned about getting a high rate of return.
1: Uh no. You could <laughs> <laughs> you could put that money in what is it, like a T bill, whatever the lowest uh, investment? lowest rate of return investment that you can get, but it's super secure. And I would think most of us could live very happily off of that for the rest of our lives.
0: Yeah. I mean a 2% on 30 billion just in a T bill would give you gosh, uh 600 million a year to live on.
1: Are you serious? That's the number. Yeah. Oh I think so. My. I'm just
0: making sure I got my decimal point in the right place. But $30 billion is $30,000 million. Yeah. So 10% of that would be $3,000 million. So yeah, 2% would be 600, $600 million a year. So you really have the problem of spending, is that right? $50 million a month. You have to spend almost $2 million a day or you're richer every day. Well,
1: And so obviously you don't. And that's how you end up with 30 billion because he's been accumulating that over his life.
0: Yeah, at 22% per year.
1: <laughs> so
0: I'm, I'm gonna say that, that Guy, and we'll t- I'll talk with Guy more, I'm gonna go over there and spend some time with him in January with you. And we'll talk more about this. But I think that there's some aspect of Guy's thinking that says that for most people, um, that he would, for, if you have sufficient capital, then investing in the broad market index and just leaving your money in the index is probably smarter than trying to figure out when to put it in and when to take it out.
1: Yeah, I think that is probably what he meant, that for people who have a good nest egg, are just trying to figure out what to do without paying a fund manager a whole bunch of money, um, he was basically just like, get in the market. Like, get in and stay in. And over the long term, it'll come out. Yep. Okay.
0: Yep. And that's
1: very standard advice. It is. Um, and it's a
0: lot easier than what we're doing. I mean, you can obviously just put your money in there. You've got a million uh, financial advisors that would show you how to do that. You've got robo-advisor accounts that do it super cheap.
1: Yeah, you can do it on a robo-advisor account and feel like you're actually controlling where your money goes, although you totally don't.
0: Yeah, exactly. And But there's a problem with that. And the problem with that is that you must either have a lot of money to start with or put a significant amount of money into this process over the next 20, 30 years. And you have to start young and you have to understand that the market can go sideways for 20 years. And you have to be able to ride through those big, long periods of time. Uh, If you retire and happen to need all of your capital working for you, um, that can be pretty disconcerting when the market goes down and doesn't come up for 10 years.
1: That's Mm -hmm. the biggest fear, I think, when you're looking at that strategy, that you're gonna retire and hit one of those down market times. Yeah, that's pretty scary. It's it's terrifying, because you have no no solution.
0: Yeah, there is no no solution. If if you literally wait through the next market crash, and what we're certain is that there'll be a next market crash, that's the nature of markets, and let me make sure everybody understands why, there must be another market crash is because markets um, in general, free markets are not regulated in the sense that some government official is telling you that now you must stop investing in the stock market, right? You don't have a Greenspan out there saying that the market's now irrationally overpriced and you'd be a fool to put your money into it at this point. Nobody's going to do that in a free market. As a result, advice like Guy was giving is to stay invested, even when someone like Greenspan is saying that the market is irrationally overpriced, which means people continue to put money into it, continue every month, buy the billions of dollars, buying stocks, even though it's 1998 and stocks are irrationally and obviously irrationally overpriced. And as a result of this irrationality that you must stay invested, you must put the money in, you must keep Buying stocks, they keep going up, so much so that um, that Keynes basically said, "Look, it, you you can't short the market because the market can be irrationally overpriced longer than you have money." So you just you can see that the bubble starts to be building and building and building on the advice of just staying in the market. Exactly what Guy just said: just stay in the market, earn more money, put it in the market, stay in the market, stay in the market, and eventually and it, it has happened over typically about an eight year period, eventually the market becomes ridiculously overpriced. People get afraid and start selling and then the market crashes. <clears throat> and this has happened with enormous regularity for 140 years. So that the idea that you're uh, you're gonna be immune to that fear that you're gonna retire right when you have a market crash is nonsense. You are going to be caught up in that fear. and. The only way I know where you can get around that is to have so much money that the market going down 50% doesn't bother you. You know, it's going to recover and you're not affected by that during your retirement.
1: Right. You have enough money aside or in another investing location that you have access to that won't be affected by that market crash. And, you know, that's great for those people. Yay. Yay. Yay, Extra money. Yeah. Extra money. It's not. It's not true for me and it's not true, probably for most of us.
0: And you should talk to your financial advisor about this because you'll drive them crazy because they don't have any alternative for you other than to recommend that you split your investments between stocks and bonds. And you know, typical investment strategy is about 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and then you change that ratio to 40% stocks, 60% bonds as you go into retirement and as you get older, it becomes more and more bonds. And that's just genius advice in, in the sense of lowering the the scary ups and downs of your investment portfolio. But it doesn't work so well if you don't have a lot of money. Right? You you put sixty percent. Why doesn't it work
1: in, so well if you don't have a lot of money? What's because the difference?
0: well, you let's say you have let's say you have a million dollars to retire on, which sounds like a lot of money. <clears throat> so you follow the investment strategy and you put sixty percent of it in bonds, and you you don't want to put it into 30-year treasuries because, unless you have a tremendous amount of money, because they're only going to yield 3%, and you expect that someday there'll be more inflation and bond rates will return back to a 30-year treasury bond at 6% or 7% or 8%. And treasuries in 1980, 81, 82, 83, the 30-year treasury was at 12, 13, 14%. So if you put your money in right now and you get 3.5% on 50% of your portfolio, you're looking at um, about well. If you did it to the entire million dollars, you'd have about thirty-five thousand dollars a year to live on.
1: Okay, wait. So you're saying you you said a whole bunch of numbers, and I got confused. You're saying that the reason that you need to have a lot of money for this bond strategy to work is that bond return is fairly low.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not even fairly not even fairly low. It's historically low. Um, and, and it may stay there for a long time. Japan's bond rates are now even far lower than ours. And they've been down there for 20 years, because the government is manipulating the bond rates, but the government's manipulating the bond rates in, a, in the US as well. But are there times when
1: bond rates are high?
0: There are, there are historical moments when bond rates are high. And so then
1: why does this strategy require a lot of money to work? If, let's assume, another time shows up when bond rates are high.
0: Great question. So let's let's say that you have $1 million um, and you're going to put... Let's, let, let me make it easy on myself. Let's say you have $2 million to retire on okay. and you're going to go for a strategy that says 50% stocks, 50% bonds. All right? So now you have $1 million you're going to put into bonds. And let's say you just decide you don't want to deal with any ups and downs of the bond market. Um, you go for a... Uh, let's say, a 30-year Treasury bond, which is a very safe bond. It's, it's giving you 3.5% per year. And so on your million dollars, you'll be getting $35,000 per year. Now, let's say we go down the road about 10 years, and we have a lot of inflation. And in order to combat inflation, what the tre- Federal uh, um, Reserve does, what the central bank does, is it raises interest rates to, to cool off the economy. You raise interest rates, people can't borrow as much, they can't spend as much, there's less consumption, and, you know, a lot of people lose their jobs, and so you cool off the economy and you reduce the inflation rate, okay? In that particular scenario, let's say it's 1980, interest rates go from 3.5% on a 30-year bond to 5%, then they go to 7, then they go to 9, and then they go to 11, and let's say that they end up at 12%, okay? So... Now you've got bonds at 12% and you've got 20 years left on your treasury bond. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you move your 3.5% yield of $35,000 to 12%? I mean, you want to do that, right? You want to get, let's move my million dollars so I make $120,000 a year instead of $35,000 a year. Right. Well, you can't because you're locked in to a yield of $35,000. What's going to happen is if you try to sell your 3.5 yielding treasury, you're not going to get a million dollars for it. You're going to get about $350,000 for it.
1: Oh, wait. So is the answer to my question because you're buying it at a you're buying a bond at a time when bond rates are low?
0: Yes. The answer to your question <laughs> is you're buying bonds at a time was, when bonds rates are very low. I was really low.
1: trying to figure out where, where we were going with this. <laughs> and okay. And
0: it's almost, it'll it's relative. So
1: the answer is is that you, you have to have a lot of money even though sometime bond rates are high because you're assuming that you're purchasing this bond at a time when bond rates are low.
0: Yep. Now, of course, what an advisor is going to tell you is, well, obviously everyone understands that problem. So we're going to do something called laddering your bonds like as in a step ladder. And, like as
1: in you buy a certain amount of bonds now and then you buy another amount in five years or something?
0: No. Um you buy the whole million dollars now, but you buy it with different durations. So that oh, you you've so got expire some expire in a year. You got some expire in five years.
1: Yeah. And
0: ten years in twenty yeah. years. Like that.
1: You'll get different rates for those. Right?
0: Yeah, you'll some get a little people. bit but all those rates are historically really low. Okay. So for example, if you bought a 10-year treasury, it's running about 2.6% right now. If you buy a 1-year treasury note, it's running, you know, at a half percent or something. So, you're it's almost not worth owning the bond because you're making nothing. Right? If I put if I put a million dollars with Wells Fargo and into an account and I tell them, "Look, I I'm happy uh to have 90-day liquidity so that You know, every 90 days I can get my access to my money. On that million dollars, they're going to pay me like $15 a year. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, and if you were to do that in Japan right now, they would take money from you. They would Mm -hmm. require that you pay them to put your money in the bank.
1: That's negative interest rates. Negative interest
0: rates, right. So the problem with this idea. So what I hear you
1: saying is don't buy bonds right now, really, unless you just want a really secure 3% return for a long time.
0: Yeah, this is a very tough time to be buying bonds. This is very And you're not time. giving
1: advice. Let's be clear. Neither of us are giving any sort of advice. We don't know your financial situation. And you should figure all that out on your own. Um, talk to your own advisors about it.
0: Yeah, and you can Google Alan Greenspan, who's the former Federal Reserve chairman. He's a really smart guy. And he's the guy who said, watch out for stocks in 1997. He said, watch out. Stocks are really getting stupidly highly priced. And they continued to be even more stupidly highly priced for another two, three years, before it finally crashed, and he just has come out and said, "Watch out for bonds. Bonds are getting stupidly highly priced right now. So the the um, the yield that you're getting on a bond is so low, and the probability that we're going to go into an inflationary environment is starting to creep up um, now that we're starting to see Donald Trump's uh, um, sort of plans for the economy." Um, You can see the stock market heated up immediately when he got elected. It just, boom, it went up to new highs immediately. Because if he can put together all of the things he's talking about, or even most of them, um, we will see much more inflation in the economy, much higher wages, much more consumption, all of which will start to require that the Federal Reserve raise interest rates to slow things down. And that means bonds will get chopped And if you have to sell them, so if you're going to do bonds, you want to be sure right now that you're buying bonds that you do not intend to sell. You're going to ride them right out to their expiration date, at which time you can get all of your cash back that you put into it. And then you can buy a bond with a higher return. So be very careful right now of going really long on bonds. Um, Right now is when you want to go really long on your mortgage, for example. <laughs> like
1: yeah, no kidding. Get, get locked out, in.
0: Get locked in. This is a really really good time to be locking in a mortgage. I think you might have missed the bottom, but it's still people don't realize because we've been in such a low mortgage environment for so long that mortgages can very easily rise in an inflationary environment to 10%, 12%. I mean, and just think about what that would do to your house payment if you wanted to buy another house. Um the you know it's just going to be phenomenally expensive is if if mortgage rates go up to their normal levels,
1: yeah yeah. But
0: most of my life, honey, I you know if we were on, your mom and I wanted to buy a house, we would be paying between six and eight percent interest on it, which is more than double of where it is right now. Or about yeah, double. I mean
1: for a good comparison, that's I was paying a little bit more than that on student loans, but that's pretty much a student loan rate, which is so. high like it's hard enough just to pay the interest on those things
0: yeah just think about that as a mortgage rate yeah exactly. let's say you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year and you can qualify for uh, maybe what would that say hundred and eight now you're making nine thousand dollars a month you could probably qualify pretty easily for about two thousand dollars a month mortgage payment but that would include mortgage that would include interest principal um, insurance and taxes, right? So two thousand bucks a month, and um, so let's just say round numbers. That's the two thousand. I mean, if mortgage rates rise to eight percent, that same house is going to cost you four thousand dollars a month.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it gets really mortgage. depressing
1: really quickly. Yeah, which is so. Let's um, let's get back to Guy because I want to talk a little bit more about his just his interesting thoughts about how to set up. An investing environment. Um, I was well, really struck-
0: before we go there, though. Before we go there, let's just wrap up on this idea that you invest for the long term because I don't think we really kind of finished it up. the 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 impetus, the idea
1: to- that we were talking about is that you invest for the long term.
0: Well, everything stay stay in the market, right? Oh. <laughs> just stay in the market, and and I just wanted to finish with this idea that that's really good advice for many people who have plenty of money that they make, that they save. They've been on a strong uh, retirement plan for a long time, and they're going to let the market continue to do its thing, which is to produce really good rates of return over the long run um, and not try to guess when to be in the market and when to be out of the market. That's extremely good advice. And and so we want to follow that advice. But what Guy is saying is that you do that by just buying the market itself. Yeah. And that's where we, we break off because our students are not people principally. You mean your students? Yeah, my students, you. Are people, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are people who, <laughs> I mean, you're a person who wants to not be locked into a, a job. You want to have the flexibility financially to do whatever you want to do in your life and not be locked into that job which is a requirement if you're going to put money into the market long term. You know, you're going to take a piece every month. You're going to put it into that market no matter what. And you're going to end up when you're 65 with a really nice pile of money, probably several million dollars, and you'll be able to live a very nice, comfortable retirement. But meanwhile, you've had this career you had to stay with. Yeah. All right. And you're a person who wants to have the flexibility to do what you want to do to write books, to, to be a missionary in Zimbabwe, I don't know, whatever it is that strikes your fancy that pulls you to your dharma in your life, what you're called to do in your life. And you would like to have the money work harder so that you can do that. And the only way I know to make that happen is to take control of your investing on your own and buy things, buy businesses that you really understand, that you really like that you that you know you're paying less than they're worth, and stick with those for the long term that's the long term strategy I like and i and again, just one last thing is that I think it's very much in the in the strategy people use when they buy real estate, which has been phenomenal for the last five or six years, is buy something that's super cheap relative to uh its rent uh its rental revenue and your your ultimate owner cash flow that comes off of that that house that you just bought, and then you're done. Just leave it alone and just maintain that that investment and um, go look for a new one with more cash that you can put in. And that's great investing. And I just want you to apply that not only to the house next door, but also to businesses that you can buy um, that are going to give you more flexibility, more choices, more opportunities over periods of time than just hoping you can get real estate super cheap.
1: Yeah, and I don't think Guy was saying anything contrary to that. I mean, obviously, he invests as a value investor in a small number of companies, very carefully chosen. And that's exactly the way you do it as well, in the same way that you teach people how to do it. So I don't think he was really saying anything different in terms of if you want to um, manage your own money, that's that's how he thinks you should do it. I think he was just, he was giving an idea for people who, who don't really want to be actively involved.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and just to, to put a, underline that statement, I mean, Guy has, I think, 16 stocks he owns, you know, with a, with a multi-hundred million dollar portfolio. So, you know, he definitely is our style of investor. We definitely share many, many uh, of the same criteria for a company we want to buy And he doesn't buy the entire market, you know? Yeah.
1: Well, and that said, you know, I really appreciated that he completely just was like, this is emotionally difficult. Like, this is hard. It's stressful. He finds it very, um, he feels the pressure of it. I could really feel that from him. Yeah. And, um... And I know it's it comes much more easy to you emotionally. And so it was really nice for me to be around somebody who's so accomplished and really knows what he's doing professionally and is also like, yeah, it sucks sometimes, you know, like this stuff is hard sometimes. (laughs) That was nice for me personally.
0: (laughs) That's really good. Okay, so you wanted to talk briefly about um, his his setup his investing world he lives in.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I I went in there hoping to talk to him about was actually like how he physically set up his office because I thought that was so interesting in his book. But we didn't talk about that at all, really. And what he said in our interview was that he's actually, since he wrote the book, has found that actually the interpersonal relationships and how you set that up in your life has affected him much more than his office environment or his office location i thought that that was an interesting thing to say because i actually think that he's so comfortable now in his office environment and in his location in zurich that he's almost forgotten maybe what it's like to not be in such a comfortable environment i think you get very used to it very quickly and uh and then we we kind of go like oh it wasn't so bad before but it could be very stressful to be around. He used to live in New York and he writes about it in his book. It can be very stressful to be around people who are, um, freaking out for lack of a better word in the market. So that's why he left New York. What did you gather
0: for like, what were the elements of his physical situation that you thought were key?
1: Well, I mean, we didn't talk about it at all. So it's really um, just from the book. Um, I mean, just he, from looking
0: around his office, what what did you
1: see? Well, he's got some interesting stuff. So we were in his library, which he writes about in his book. And he has um, a few pictures of Warren Buffett.
0: And oh, my God, yes. I know Guy pretty well. And I just want to say to him, if you're hearing this guy, I apologize. I feel a little bit like we're, we're talking out of turn about your house or something, about your personal. But since you put it in your
1: book. I wouldn't right. talk about it except that he wrote about it yeah, and okay. he obviously thought it was important enough to dedicate an entire chapter to. Yeah. So I think it's fine. He, he already wrote about it. He has a bust of, is it Charlie Munger? Charlie, or Munger. Buffett, Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger, yep. which I think is hilarious. <laughs> why? I don't know why it's so funny to me. And maybe because he's still alive, but it's just strange to have a bust of somebody. Who's you know, like it a just it, rem-
0: it reminds me that, that, my visit with Wahei Takita over in Japan, who's the Warren Buffett of Japan, a billionaire, he surrounded himself with something similar, like he had the um, the the busts of I think sixty of Japan's most famous philosophers that he respected. Mm. He he built an entire room around these guys.
1: Oh of busts.
0: Of busts and uh, what do you call that sort of face thing that's flat but the face is is actually three dimensional.
1: Oh gosh, I have no idea.
0: It's like uh, I forget what they call it, but it's yeah, it's like a pie plate that you stuck your face into.
1: Yeah. And your yeah. face pokes out. That's <laughs> so creepy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what well, doesn't look creepy? It looks cool. And so but just to the point that that here's another billionaire who's surrounded himself with things that he admires ideas that he admires and the people who represent those ideas. Something going on there.
1: No, well I, I think it's, and I've done the same thing with a couple of things. I think when you're dealing with something that's emotional and that you have to find a way to ground yourself within those emotions, it can be very helpful to have literally a physical object object that you can touch and you can see to say, hey, pull yourself out of your own head, pull yourself out of your own whatever crazy emotions that are going on and just have that grounding feeling. I want to I think, go get I think one. physical now. options, physical objects can be really helpful with that.
0: I, I think I want one. And I, I was just watching Castaway again, you know, Tom Hanks movie about the FedEx guy who crashes on an island. Yeah. And he's got Wilson.
1: He does have Wilson. And Wilson Do you want a Wilson dad? Super, well,
0: I think Charlie Munger's Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: When you ain't got nobody, at least you got a messed up volleyball.
0: And and investing is a very solitary act. I mean. Yeah. Totally. Did you catch that? That, that guy, you know, talks with other people, other investors, you know, and I'm I'm flattered that he talks to me once in a while, but. You know people like Monash Praryi are phenomenally great investors, and guy talks to them, but notice that he, he mentioned he doesn't they don't really they don't really um, try to sell you we, each guy doesn't try to sell you on his idea that you're going to invest in it it's more Oh,
1: I loved that that yeah. they talk about it from an intellectual perspective yeah. and never say whether or not they're going to buy it or they exactly. have bought it or they decided not to buy it They That's, never. Say that
0: I think that's really important that you, you you put that boundary around the discussion so that y- you are really trying to stay objective and rational and look at this company. And what you're talking to is another person, or who you're talking to is another person. Like, I can talk to you about, let's say, you know, Seritage or something like that, right? And yeah. and um uh, and we that's can, a company, yeah, way. a company that I'm looking at, so we can talk about that and we can. And and we're having a discussion and I'm asking you to think about this in a certain way and you're responding and that back and forth provides us with an opportunity to do what Charlie Munger said is the most important thing you can do before you invest. And that is to invert the argument, to to flip it over on its head and where you were saying, hey, look, Danielle, I really like this company for these reasons. Now you, you are listening to the other side. Flipping it over and saying, these are all the reasons you shouldn't like it, if you Mm -hmm. think about it. And then you have addressed those issues. And really, Charlie says you should know the downside of the company, the reason people hate it, better than the people who hate it. You need to know that argument, right?
1: It's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do because by the time you get to that point of inverting the argument, you've already made the pro argument to yourself or else there's nothing to invert. And once you've, once I've made the pro argument to myself, I get pretty attached to that company because there aren't a lot of companies that I find and really like. And so by the time I get to the point where I'm like, whoa, this one's really looking good. It's, it's time to figure out what's wrong with it. I'm almost too far in. Like I'm in deep. Yeah. And it's hard to, even as a lawyer, it's hard to pull, and I'm, I'm used to doing this. It's hard to pull back and flip that argument dispassionately. Right. And yeah. I think what really helps is saying it out loud to somebody else. It takes you out, again, it's the grounding thing. It's like having the bust of Charlie Munger next to you. Saying it to somebody else grounds you, it's real. It's coming out of your mouth. You're making an argument to somebody. It has to make sense. You're not just speaking it inside your own head. And it makes a big difference.
0: Oh man, we have so much fun with that very thing at our, our three day, uh, workshop that we do in Atlanta, where all, all day Friday, basically, we're helping people build their own story and learn to invert that argument. And then they make those presentations on Saturday morning to their small groups and have to have to put out, uh, you know, a five to 10 minute discussion about this company. And um, and it really crystallizes a lot of the the, yeah. the concepts, because then you realize, wow, I really didn't. I didn't do this part of it. I, you know, I didn't properly invert it or I didn't really make a, a good case that it's got a good moat. Um, yeah. We have a lot of fun with that. And that's, that's a fun thing to do.
1: Yeah. I also thought something, so back to the uh, sort of setting up your environment, he was saying that um, his relationship with his wife was a really important component to staying steady and feeling grounded. Um, and, Obviously, I was thinking, well, what about people who are not married? And what about people who, you know, are having troubles at home? Like there's all sorts of crappy things to happen to all of us. And I would certainly hope that we could still do this investing practice, even while sort of the storm rages around us, so to speak, as it does in all of our lives. Every I tell you, it makes
0: it harder. It really, it, it really does. It makes it harder. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, if, if you don't. If you're not either single or married in a stable non-relationship or relationship, you know, where you're not going through emotional turmoil, um, things are a lot easier. When you go through emotional turmoil, it affects everything in your life, particularly those things which you're trying to stay unemotional about, right? But now you're, it's like you put on a different colored glasses. All of a sudden you're seeing the world is red because of all this emotion. It's very hard to not see your investments through that same colored glasses.
1: I mean, maybe so, you know, everybody's experience will be different, but my hope for myself is that this practice is a source of stability is a steadiness in my life. That's about reading and learning and, and following what's happening in the rest of the world and connecting My own choices about where to put money and about what things to support really give me a sense of value in the world. And that's to me what value investing is becoming for me. And um, yes, stresses around us and in our relationships will affect us. There's no question.
0: And we're always going to have that. You know, we're always going
1: to. That's the point is it's not like, oh, well things have been crappy for the last five years, but hopefully they're good in the future. Like, who knows? Like, there's always stuff that happens in all of our lives. And there's so many ups and downs all the time. And I, I, I'm trying to make this practice a steadying force. Well, that's a
0: huge, great point. Because if you organize your, your working environment, like Guy has, um, like I have, I love my office, you know, and yeah. I know Guy loves his office. It's a sanctuary. It's a place of deep meditation. What we do is a very solitary thing. You know, you, you're you going to go in there and you're going to meditate on the aspects of a business and where that will be in the future. And you're going to try to boil it down to this one little simple thing, just one little simple thing, which is the corollary of rule number one, don't lose money, <clears throat> and that is that 10 years from now, that business will be worth more than it's worth today. That's how we buy a house. That's how we buy good investments. So it's just the corollary of rule number one. And you're going to meditate on that. And you're going to be in an environment where that is fun to do, where it's comfortable to do. So one of the great things about being your own master when it comes to investing is that you're going to build an environment for yourself that's really comfortable, that you, you love going into, And you're going to go into that environment and you're going to, you're going to do the work. And that's what guy does. That's what I do. That's what you're going to do. And
1: and that's lovely for people who have, I don't have that. (laughs) I (laughs) I don't, I don't, I don't have space for it. And to be totally honest, I don't have that, but most of us don't have an extra room in our houses where we're going to make an office. That's a sanctuary. That's life. So I've done other stuff that, it lets me create my own feeling of this is my investing space. This is where I go to think. And yes, it's not like a room off to its own the way you and Guy have. But um but I think there are ways to make it better than just
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, if you've if you got kids and, and uh you're working from home, you know, when they go off then you've got you've got the whole house. You can find a place there. In your situation Noon's leaves and goes to work. You you're there to write. You're there to do your other stuff, and you can build a, an area that works, you know.
1: Well, sometimes, and sometimes not so much. And it, yeah. and you
0: make it so, work. I'm I'm thinking of people who are writers. Work. You know, they're <laughs> remember those books, Clan of the Cave Bear. These huge, giant, thick fictional books about somebody way back in the day. Yeah, those were written by a woman in Oregon who wrote. At night, after the kids went to sleep and her husband went to sleep, she would just write and and she'd get up early and write. And, you know, you make it work if you want to make it work. And if it's important to you to make it work, you make it work.
1: Yeah, you do. I mean, I think the reason that you you use those words to make it work, it, it sounds a bit like a forced march. But the reason that you make it work is that you get something internally out of making it work out of doing the work Good that's point. far more than the pain of waking up early or going to bed late or carving out the half an hour um, that you would have spent doing something else. So that's the goal here. That's the goal for me. That's what I'm starting to realize. And Guy's book honestly really led me a lot to these ideas that that investing in the value investing vein can actually influence other parts of my life and i'm certainly having those same experiences it's pretty cool
0: very cool well let's wrap it up i think that's enough for today
1: that's good and let's say thank you again into the ether to guy spear for being on our show it was really great
0: if you're listening you you're a fabulous friend and i can't wait to uh, see you and Lori and the kids and it's just uh fabulous that you opened up your office and your mind to us to uh, share with everybody Hope we're doing an okay job with that. And uh, you're, if we're not, let me know and we'll correct it as we go <laughs> down the road. So until next well, time. Let me uh, just orient
1: time. everybody here. I want to give some orientation as to what we're doing. Because before we had the excitement of having Guy Spear on the show, we were doing our Back to Basics series. Do you remember our Back to Basics series, Dad? This is one of the great problems we have with
0: this podcast is we wander. So I do remember we're in an eight-point series. Wonder, I
1: think. We wander, it is true, but I think we wander for good reason. I do too. And that was a good reason. I do too. But let's let's just remember that we were doing our Back to Basics series. I swore that we would finish it, and we will. And so next time, we're going to be back to Back to Basics, and it's going to be part eight. And we last time we were doing Back to Basics, before the interview with Guy, we had discussed 10 different, you had mentioned really... 10 different companies that had maybe brands or no brands. And we were talking about what kinds of brands they had. Or moat or no moat. Oh my gosh. Why do I keep on using the word brand instead of moat?
0: Well, it is a, it is a moat. I know. But we're going to look at moats that are not necessarily brand moats, but which are moats nonetheless. So we'll talk about that next time.
1: Whenever I say that you have to like, just make a little ding <laughs> noise or something. Um, so I just want to read the list off so people can remind themselves and then we'll come back to it next time. Okay, so we talked about 21st Century Fox already. Yep. The other ones were Walt Disney, Polaris, Tiffany, Wells Fargo, which we also talked a bit about, MasterCard, Emerson Electric, John Deere, Visa, and Salesforce. So we'll get back to those on the next episode, Dad. We'll run through those and then um, move on to management.
0: Okay, sounds good. Time to go play. Sounds
1: good. See ya. Thanks, everybody. Bye.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop. For details on an upcoming three day live workshop that I'm hosting, all you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S T O C K P I L E, stockpile, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So, everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion, and it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor Have I Considered Your Personal Situation as Your Fiduciary? This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.